Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Before we begin, why don't we uh, start with some prayer. The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for bringing us all here together. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which teaches us, which comforts us, which challenges us, and uh, shows us the way to live in a life which is accordant with your will. Lord, we we ask you to send us your Holy Spirit to use your words today to change our hearts and to help us become better uh, stewards of your truth to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. So... Glad to see you all here today. We are going to do a, just a little bit of recap from last week while people are coming in. And then I'll uh, give you about three minutes of recap and then we're going to launch into the text for today. Uh, last week we talked about Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is all about what? Creation. The creation narrative. And one thing we hear over and over again in the creation narrative is God created whatever and it was good, except for one thing. What was the one thing that was not good? Oh, man was good. The, the fact that man was alone, remember that? So we saw that the, the man, the Hadam, the man of red dirt is what it means actually in Hebrew, uh, was alone and that was not good. And so God made a helper for him. We talked about how that might have occurred with a lateral split, for example. Anyway, lots of theories out there, but the reality, the fact is that God saw that the man was alone and that was not good, and then he created woman out of man and the two become one flesh. Was that a little bit of an interesting uh, presentation last week of how we talked about that? Yeah, again, I can't prove it because it's not, the whole split theory isn't said that way in Genesis, and a lot of things are kind of vague in Genesis, so you have different people that try to come up with ways to understand it, which we're going to talk about today too. Uh, but it's a theory, right? That Adam was split in two halves, and the two halves become a whole. You get the idea. And the reason is because, the reason we can do that with some degree of certainty is not just because it's a good theory, but because the word for side and the word for rib are the same word. So most people understand that God took a rib from Adam and made Eve out of a spare part, but the word for rib can also be translated as side. So you are are, um, grammatically within your bounds to define it as side and not rib. Does that make sense, everyone? So that's where that theory comes from. But the reality is nobody really knows. One thing, too, which we did not talk about last week, and I do want to touch on briefly, is people get all spun up asking questions of things that Genesis just doesn't talk about, right? Where are the dinosaurs? Well, maybe they're in there. Maybe not. Where did the, de- where did the devil come from? We're going to talk about that today. Is it clear? No, actually. At least not in Genesis, it's not. There's lots of things which... Is it really seven days, seven 24-hour periods, or is that uh, figurative? It's not clear. The one thing to remember, though, which is, uh, which is uh, always been helpful, and they tell you this in seminary, because nobody, nobody chases rabbit trails like seminarians do. 
Remember this, and it'll help you. The things that we need to know, the technical term in the prayer book was all things necessary for salvation are clear. So what the Holy Spirit needs you to know are clear. It's all the other stuff that people get spun up on. Good questions. But if it's not clear, there's room for speculation. This is where the idea of, of uh, comprehensiveness in Anglican theology comes from. The stuff that's clear, though, is clear. And the stuff that you need to know is clear. Does that make sense? OK. So God created the world, and it was good. That part is clear. As I said last week, Moses writes the story of creation in the context of competing worldviews. So when he creates the sun and the moon and the stars and all the animals, what Moses is really saying to all the people around him is, yeah, all the stuff that you guys worship, like sun gods and moon gods and cows and whatever, yeah, you can worship that stuff, but my God is the, only, is the true God because he made it all. Does that make sense? That's actually what Moses is driving at. He doesn't care about dinosaurs. What he cares about is speaking into the problems of his, his context. Is that clear, everybody? Okay, good. Uh, so today we are going to look briefly at, we're going to look at the fall, chapter 3 of Genesis. But before we get into that, I do want to back up just a little bit and try something interesting. I want to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We talked about this last week. And I'm going to briefly touch on this because it's important and it comes in chapter 3. Um, okay, so for today, you know that we described last week that uh, Eden is given a physical location, right? Between the Tigris and Euphrates, the Pishon and the Gishon. So it's somewhere in modern-day Iraq in what is known as the Fertile Crescent. That's where Eden was. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Then, verses 15 and 16, I want to read this again because it's going to come up in our chapter for today. So let's go ahead and read it. Um, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Right? Side note, even before the fall, mankind was designed to be productive. It wasn't a life of leisure. Okay? So God put him in the, in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Everything. It's all yours. Oop. But the tree, listen to the words closely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Let's read that again. He says here, you may surely eat of the tree, every tree of the, of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now, what is this the tree of? Is it the tree of good and evil? No, it is not the tree of good and evil. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You with me? So does evil exist at this point in the story? It does. It exists, right, it exists by now. We don't, again, we're not told when it creeped in, but you're right, it exists there because this tree, if you eat the fruit of it, gives you the knowledge of good and evil. So let me ask you this. Um, do they know what good and evil is? No, you can't really know evil unless you know what good is, right? And you can't know what good is unless you know what evil is. Uh, somebody once referred to Adam and Eve's state as blissful 
blissfully naive. And God, God says, look, you can have absolutely everything here. It's all yours. But, he says, don't touch the shiny red button. <laughs> don't touch. If you eat of this, you will die. And the, notice the implication here. Notice something important. God doesn't, God allows them to make the choice, doesn't he? And you might say to yourself, well, why in the world would God allow that? Why didn't he just not, why did he just wipe out the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's a good question. We don't know. But one thing we do know, and that's this. God's plan is for people to respond to him in what? Love. Okay? Can you have love if it's forced? Yes or no? No, you can't. If you force someone to love you, that's not love. That's kidnapping or coercion. So God has to allow the exercise of free will for his plan of love to be in place. Does that make sense? Okay. Notice something else too. They are the only creatures in the garden who are given the opportunity to know good and evil. Then, um, okay, then we go through this part, and then we notice something at the very end, chapter, uh, verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, that word means cleave, come together, through sexual union, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We talked about this last week, right? And here is a crucially important little nugget. You ready for this? Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the word naked there means birthday suit, but it also means, it also means uh, it's a word which, which connotates vulnerability, All right? Complete, complete vulnerability to themselves, to each other, and to who else? To God. Right? They were both nakedness, it doesn't mean naked, I mean it means naked, but the word has a deeper connotation. And it's so important to understand this. That when God created the man and woman, before the fall, they were completely vulnerable to each other and to God, and they were unashamed of it. Does that make sense? How many people do you know who, I mean, and I've said this before preaching and I'll move on, the human heart, every one of you, and including me, every person wants to be loved for who they are and known thoroughly. And I guarantee you there is nobody in this room who knows you and who loves you as thoroughly as God does. But the important thing to remember is that human beings were created for a life of complete transparency and truth and intimacy and nakedness even if you want to look at it that way before each other and before God there's nothing wrong relationally with the world does that make sense I'm beating this point up because it is the foundation for every worldview that we'll get to this in a minute but unless you know the way we are designed to live then what happens next next won't make any sense to you at all when I was a 21-year-old man, 20, 21-year-old man, my, what brought me to Christianity was actually a question which a lot of people ask at their, in their life at some point, and it's this. How does a good God allow evil? Or we might say, how do, how, why do bad things happen to good people, right? 
Well, here's the key. Before the fall, the way that God created you and I to live was not the way we live now. It was complete and utter transparency and vulnerability and love before each other and before God. Does this make sense, everyone? That is what you and I were made for, right? Until, here we go. Verse three, or chapter three, verse one. We're gonna get into the fall, you ready? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is so subtle. I love this. I hate it, but I love it in its, in its subtlety. He said, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Let's just stop right there a minute, shall we? What we see here is the first, remember, look at verse 25 says, everything is just great. And then the very next verse, and you see this over and over in the Bible, it all falls apart. The serpent was more crafty. Now, what's the deal with this serpent? Where did this serpent come from? That's a very good question. Uh, we're going to get to this later on. We don't actually know yet. Genesis does not tell us where the serpent comes from. Jesus actually does in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 18. Let's, let's pause on that for a minute. Where it, the serpent is, in the Hebrew, the serpent is just a snake, right? There's no special word there for like demon or devil or anything like that. But the serpent uh, is actually either, either it is a demon in snake-like form, that's one possibility, or it's just a snake through whom evil speaks. Does that make sense? But the que it still begs the question, where did it come from? After all, if God made the, gar the creation and it's all good, where'd this stuff come from? You with me? Let me tell you, this is a theory. I can't prove it, I'm, I'm pretty close to being able to prove it. Here's what I would say. If you know, there's a story in Luke chapter 10. Is that feeding back when I get over here? In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, the apostles are out casting out demons and they come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're not gonna believe this. We were out healing people and curing and, and casting out demons. And Jesus says something very, very important. He says, anybody know? I saw Satan falling from the sky like lightning. I saw Satan falling like lightning from the sky. Now, that is the only place that we hear that. Satan is what? The devil, okay? Here's the theory and here's what makes sense. God created you and I, he created all of creation somewhere in there, we're not actually told when, but somewhere in there, he creates critters called angels, right? The angels are, and we can get into this a little bit, but angels are non-physical beings. They don't have bodies like you and I have. If you are a non-physical being, there's something which does not happen to you. Does anybody know what it is? You don't age and you can't change. 
because as a complete spirit, you have access to all, you're not omniscient or omnipresent, but you are, you are, uh, you are not bound by time. You with me? Just stay with me. If I confuse you, it's not that important. But what I want you to understand is when God, when God created angels, he created them, and as everything else, when he created them, he created them what? Good. Good. Something happened. And it's not described in Genesis, but Jesus tells us that he saw Satan fall from the sky. The he heaven is the word, I mean, arenas. Here's the theory. Somewhere between Genesis 2 and here, somewhere in there, this happened. And angels either fell, either they're good or bad, based upon how they exercise their free will. You with me? So somewhere in there, angels, some of them fell from heaven and were cast down to where? Earth. And that's where they come from. But here's the important point. Did God make them good or bad? He made them good. What made them bad? Their choice. Free will. And the reason I say that is because we see the exact exact same dynamic in four verses from now. So where does the serpent come from? Again, Genesis doesn't tell us, but Jesus does tell us that in, that in, Luke, in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, that he, will, that he saw Satan falling from the sky. One other point I want to make here is this. Satan, the word Satan, what does the word Satan mean? Does anybody know? Uh, deceiver, or actually the word is hasatanas. And it means the, the adversary. If you're in a court of law and you are on the stand and the person who is the prosecuting attorney, he is your, no offense if you're a lawyer, I don't mean it that way, he is the adversary, okay? So Satan is not, listen to this, Satan is not God's adversary, he is ours. And the reason I bring that up is you see in Scripture over and over again, particularly in Job and when Jesus casts out demons, the demons fight against Jesus, there's no doubt about it, but he has complete power over them. Does that make sense? This is so important to understand because otherwise you fall into something like this, which is what every other religion teaches in the world. Why is that feeding back, Chris? Do you hear that? No? You don't hear? Okay, I do. What you hear is this, right? Anybody ever see this symbol before? The yin and the yang. And that means that good and evil are two polarly opposing, always fighting forces. It is true that good and evil are at war, but the war is not between Satan and God. It's between Satan and us and the angels. Does that make sense? Because we know that Jesus is victorious. We'll get to this later. But what I want you to see is that Satan sneaks in there somehow and begins to do his work. And I want, to see, I want you to see how this works. The way Satan tempts Eve is the same way that he tempts me and you. Any questions so far? You guys with me? All right. He said to the, uh, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let me ask you something. When God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why did he tell them that? What was his motivation? Protection. Protection and what? Yeah, protection and what? Love. And, you know, any of you have kids or grandkids, and you give them a computer, what do you do? You put 
blockers on them so they can't see certain things, or you, you block TV channels so they can't see stuff. God is protecting them from the knowledge of good and evil. God knows what it is, but they don't. They are blissfully naive. And God, out of love, says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does the devil say to Eve? It's so subtle. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The implication is the devil has turned God from an, from, from an advocate to Adam and Eve to an adversary. Do you see it? It's very subtle. Let me give you a concrete example. I will do what I want with my body. No God's going to tell me what I'm going to do. Right? Any moral transaction that you and I violate, and we all do it because we're all sinners, we all do it because we think we know better than God, and he is somehow restraining, restraining our freedom. Does that make sense? Every sin, I don't care what it is, every sin is when God says, don't do this so you don't hurt yourself, and we say somewhere in there, well, God really is, you know, God, I hear you, but I got this one, man. I'm right. And for some reason, God, I don't know what it is, maybe it's because you're just a mean old ogre, you are trying to restrict my freedom and I'm going to exercise it. Do you see the subtlety there? We all fall prey to this, and so did Eve. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the minute that she responds, <laughs> the battle's over. Do you see what she does? She says to him, she actually, because uh, de the devil actually quotes scripture accurately, but he puts an angle on it that makes God now the adversary rather than the advocate, the, 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 uh, the um, authority rather than the God who loves. And then Eve says something interesting, but, um, but the servant said to the woman, uh, oh wait, you shall not eat of any tree of the, that is in the midst of the garden, garden, neither shall you touch it. Did God say don't touch it? No. Here's the point. Is it a minor detail? It is, except once Eve entertains the question, right? Once she, and we've all done, we've done this a million times. Once she entertains the, the temptation, once she begins to give in, the battle's over. Because she actually says, neither sh you shall not eat it nor touch it. She's just misquoted God. She has made him he just said, don't eat it. She's saying, don't eat it or don't touch it. She is putting further restriction on what God said. She is now seeing him not as an advocate, but as an adversary. It's very subtle. In the Hebrew, it's a little stronger to see it. And then, every, and then from there on in, it's just all downhill. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And it gets even worse. This is when the devil says, that he knows God better than Eve does, which this devil will always do. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the devil is saying is, Eve, he's not telling you to stay away from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because he loves you. He's doing it because he's afraid of you. He's afraid you'll have knowledge and you'll, he's afraid you'll be like him. Do you see the temptation there? The minute that we fall prey to temptation, what we're really saying is I know better than God does. 
Any comments or questions there, friends? I've always wondered what if the serpent approached the man instead of the woman. Well, that's, uh, who knows? I mean, it's, a, it's an open question, but actually... Okay. What's that? That's right. Well, actually, but actually, hang on a minute. When God said, God said to the woman, uh, did God actually say you? That's actually plural. It, he's talking to the woman, but Adam is not playing golf. He's right there. No offense to golfers, I just mean he's, he's, out, he's not out doing something. He's right there. So he's, the devil is addressing Eve, but Adam hears it and does nothing. There's the, so when the, when the woman saw, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, this is what happens. So she, she says to herself, yeah, maybe God really is just giving me these rules just to keep me from having a little, a little fun. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it's good to eat, which we knew all along. It's a beautiful tree. It says so. And it was a delight to the eyes. It's good to eat and it's beautiful. It's awfully attractive. And it was desired to make one wise. She took of it and she ate and she gave it to her husband. It's a very quick succession of verbs in the Hebrew. It's almost like the Greek there, or sorry, the, the grammar there is very abrupt. Bum, 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 in thought. So she sees it's beautiful. She sees it's a delight to, the, uh, to eat and it's desired to make one wise, to give her knowledge to be like God. And she eats of it and she gives some to her husband who was with her. It says right there. Most people think of Adam as he's out doing something else. He was right there. This, wasn't, this is what was not the serpent tricking Eve and then she reigns in Adam. No, no. Adam was part, was, was part of the whole, whole story. Um, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And what happens next? The eyes of both were opened. What do they now see? Good and evil. And what's the first thing they do? And they knew that they were naked. The point being, the minute that evil is introduced into the human experience, and there's a several things which occur going forward, the minute that, they, that evil is introduced into the human experience, the minute that we become aware of it, the first consequence is shame. And then, they sew fig leaves together and made themselves, they covered themselves. Do you see the problem? How many of you have, um, have ever had one of your kids or your grandkids see something on the news or whatever and, and, they, and they just got, and you say, honey, where'd you see that? Gracie saw something recently that was human trafficking or something and she was just mortified. Her 11-year-old little brain just could make no sense of people selling people. And she was terrified and mortified and I thought to myself, I think she, I don't even know how she saw it, I guess it was on the news or something, it was a headline, didn't get into a lot of detail about it, but she, her little experience of blessed naivete had been shattered. So if you want to know how God felt in that circumstance, you've all felt it, right? Yes or no? You have. And so the first thing they see is they are, that Adam and Eve are ashamed Let's stop there. Any questions so far on that? What do you think? I think that was very passive. Yes. When she ate of the fruit, yes. why were her eyes not 
I don't know. All I know is that the whole point is it's a collective act. That when, and that's a good point that James raises too. Uh, in the idea of the Old, in, in the Old Testament, of course, the man has headship over the woman. The fact that he allows her to have a conversation rather than running interference is actually the first problem because it's Adam's responsibility to protect his family, right? Um, and so when, she, when he does not do that and he fails to act as a protector of his wife, that's actually where the whole problem starts. Adam should have been like, hey, wait a minute, back up. He should have, but he doesn't. So Adam's, Adam's sin, her sin is an act of commission, right? His is an act of omission, acquiescence. So for some, and why did she not get her eyes open first? I really don't know. But the whole, the whole point is this, this was not Eve who was tricked and then she goaded Adam into sort of coming along for the ride. This is a collective act. And Adam and Eve, and, and one thing you might not know too, in Jewish thought, we think of human beings as distinct you know, carbon units, right? I'm me and you're you, and we're very distinct individuals. The Jews didn't really think of it that way. They think of it as people having sort of a collective identity, which actually we do too, uh, but we just don't admit it. So for Adam and Eve to have the fall, actually, and Paul says this in his texts, uh, it's actually, it wasn't just Adam and Eve, it was you and me. Paul says, just as in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive, meaning somehow, and I can't tell you how, I was there too. I'm not just, a, I'm not just an unwilling participant, or it's not, just, it's not just that Father Rodriguez gets the, or you gets the consequence of that fall. Somehow, the brokenness of my own heart is in, was involved in that initial eating of the fruit. And if you want proof, just to examine your own behavior, what you do, to try to become like God so you don't have to worry about him. Yes, so uh, any other comments or questions? Is this clear, everybody? Am I confusing any? I'm just trying to, we're going kind of fast here, but I would like to be clear. Does this help you understand stand the nature of good and evil? Um, now, people will sometimes dismiss this. They'll dismiss this as a fairy tale. This actually, if you are willing to allow the Bible to present to you the worldview, which it presents, which is this, that humans are, were made good, that we have fallen, but we were made for something better. If you're willing to take what the Bible says and unravel it all the way through, it's a worldview, it is the only worldview which actually, which actually makes any sense. And I'll prove it to you. How many of you, how many of you ever said to yourselves, uh, human trafficking, I'll stay there, human trafficking is wrong. Is human trafficking wrong, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Is slavery wrong, yes or no? Yes. Is, on, on what grounds do you make that judgment? Has there always been slavery in the world? Yes. Yep. Has there always been human, human trafficking in the world? Yes. Yep. Has there always been uh, promiscuity, murder, adultery, thievery, killing, murder, wars? Has there always been that in human history? Yes. Okay, so on what grounds do you have any reason at all to say the world should be better than the way it is? Where, what, are, what are you, what is our culture appealing to when they say the world should be this? Yes. So all of your secular friends who don't think this is all fairy tale, you push them and say, okay, well, use an example. Is slavery wrong? Of course it is. But why do you say that? Because we've always had it. On what grounds, to what do you appeal to say the world should be better than it is? And the answer is there is none. 
You could say, you could say, well, we've all, just as a matter of humanity, agreed slavery is wrong, and that's why I think slavery is wrong, for example. But that then means that if you had a vote of parliament or a political party which came into power and voted differently, that it would make it okay. Does this make sense? Or, for example, if you're a German in 1938 and you believe that killing Jews is wrong, but then the government comes in and changes the rules to make it legal and, and advocates for it, does it make it right or not? No. So you and I, we all make moral assertions based upon a world different than what we experience, but we all know it to be true. Does that make sense? Where does that come from? You know where it comes from? Right there. So when your secular friends say, oh, I don't believe in God, I believe in, the, you know, the human, the, uh, uh, you know, just in people, human's goodness, human, human's goodness, say, why on earth would you believe that? <laughs> if you read human history, the one thing you come away with is, my gosh, people are evil and wicked and do all sorts of terrible things to each other. On what grounds can you make the moral assertion things should be better unless you believe that? And I would submit this again, Eden is where everybody comes from, right? Believer or non-believer, all humanity flows from this idea of Eden. And I would submit to you that all humanity has at its root a knowledge and a memory of it. You want to know why? We were made for something better than this. So anybody who thinks this is a fairy tale and this is a worldview which is uh, you know, kind of make-believe, oh, no, no, no. Everybody you know believes this to be true. Don't they? Yes or no? Is that confusing to you? If it is, ask a question, because this is a really important point. I mean, you can argue about the particulars, you can argue about you know, Obamacare or the wall and all that sort of jazz, but the minute that you make a moral assertion that things should be this, when they never have been that way, you're appealing to a standard which has never existed in human history. Where are you pulling it from? That's where you're getting it from. So. Anything, anything from that? Uh, okay, so what happens next? Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what's the first thing that happens then? They feel shame. And then what happens next? And they heard, this is awesome, they heard, let's get verse eight, verse eight. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God working in the walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, that word there is actually describing a stroll. Anybody here go for walks at night? Yeah, that's what God's doing. He is walking through the garden, whistling a tune like Father Switz does when he comes into the office on Monday morning. <laughs> now, what would or now, ordinarily, when God would go walking through the Garden of Eden on the, in the cool of the day, what would Adam and Eve have done? Yo, Yahweh, how's it going, right? They would meet him, they would talk to him, they could have conversation with him, but what do they do? Remember, the fall, at the fall, you see the breakdown of all human relationships with God, with each other, and with ourselves. And the first thing they see, they see that hear the Lord, hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Now let me ask you a question. Is that possible to do? Can you hide behind a tree and, you know? If you're God, who is omniscient, omnipresent, 
and, uh, and atemporal. Can you hide from him ever? Can you? Do you? Absolutely you do. And so do I. We try to. But Adam and Eve, so Adam, so just, what I'm trying to say to you is this dynamic is not just a, a story. You and I are in it. And so they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now God, does God know they're hiding? Yes or no? He must, right? He's God. He knows everything. You can't hide anything from him. You know, in the beginning of the liturgy, you ever notice something that the priest says in the Anglican liturgy in the very beginning, before we even go to the altar? Um, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. The next time I say that, and I'm standing there, and, I'm, and the priest represents you praying that to God, think about what I'm saying. Because we're breaking, but it's what the Anglican liturgy, the prayer book is saying is, God, we try really hard to hide from you behind the, behind the trees, but we're bringing it all, man. The, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And a lot of it's ugly. But he already knows it. And so the whole point being, as a Christian, and we'll get to this in a minute, we can go before the throne of God boldly because of what Jesus has done in our place. But, in, but before the redemption piece, we see shame. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, I love this, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, could God have said, Adam, get your butt out here right now, right? You ever have a kid who does something wrong and you know it? What do you do? If you say, Johnny, get down here right now. Or you might say, hey, Johnny. Yeah, Dad, why don't you tell me about what happened at school today? Do you see the difference? In other words, God, this is so fascinating to me. God could have, and maybe even, I shouldn't say should have, because he's God. God could have just dropped the hammer. Adam, what have you done? You he doesn't do that. He actually asks him. It's a, it's a pastoral, loving tone, kind of like you've done with your kids and your grandchildren. He says, where are you? Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you. I'm concerned about you is the implication in the Hebrew. Adam, well, I don't see you here. You're, I know you're hiding from me. I'm not going to tell you I know that, but <laughs> where are you? I'm worried about you. Where have you. Is something wrong? That's kind of the implication of the question. But notice the pastoral concern of God for Adam and for you and me. And he says, where are you? <laughs> um, and, the, uh, and, he, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And this verse here has always struck me. God said, again, think of the context. God is saying this to Adam in a loving, compassionate, concerned tone. He says to him, who told you you were naked? Billy, who told you? Where'd you hear that? Who at school told you about that? Right? Where did you see that? The point being, God is worried and concerned and pastoral, even in his anger. Does that make sense? People think of the God of the old of the Bible, and particularly in the fall, as this sort of ogre. That's what the devil wanted Eve to believe, right? When he tempted her. Nothing could be further from the truth. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? That's a rhetorical question. And then, does Adam say, you know, God, I'm really sorry. Does he say that? Does he say, does he say you know, a couple beers, you know, what happens in Eden stays in Eden, I don't know. Does he do any of that stuff? 
Does he try, does he come clean? When God says, who told you you were naked? Does Adam say, does Adam give him an answer? Does Adam try to, does Adam try to repent? Does Adam say, I'm sorry? Does Adam say, holy cow, I can't believe what I've done? No, what he says is, she did it. <laughs> and notice something here too. He doesn't just blame Eve. He blames God. Look what he says here. Uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to do? Have you done what I told you not to? Have you, have you touched the shiny red button? And the man said, the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. So he does this. And not only does he just blame Eve, which is what everybody hears, he actually blames God. How many of you have ever done something wrong and blamed God for it? You have. Well, Lord, if you hadn't, if you had just cut me some slack, if you should, if you'd just been a little more patient with me, if you'd, if you'd given my kid another opportunity, how many times have we blamed God for things we've done wrong? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. But the point I want you to see here is that God is still loving, even despite all this. The woman whom you gave me, God, I, it's his fault. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to, said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's going on here? <laughs> Passing the buck. The thing I want you to see here, what would have undone the problem at the very first was Adam doing something which we as Christians are called to do every day, right? And that is the word, if I can find my black marker. Repent. Does anybody know what the word repent means? It means change direction, right? It's not, and it's actually a word which means, um, it actually means if you're walking along a path and you go, uh-oh, I'm lost. Or I, made a, I must have made a bad turn. And you turn around and go back the way you came. That's what the word repent means. When God says repent, it's not repent. It's repent before you wind up getting yourself into more hurt. Does that make sense? It means you can't ever do it again. No, it means you can do it again, and you will. But what God is saying is, look, the repentance is God's way of saying, Adam, what have you done? Chris, what have you done? Right? And, and the whole point is, we as Christians, because Jesus has died for us, have the opportunity, and we'll get into this later, to repent and come back to God because Jesus has undone the curse of all this. So with the, the, the flaw that Adam made was not necessarily even just the sin. It was the sin and the lack of repentance. And so what happens next? Um, they, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord God says to the serpent, because you've done this, you'll be cursed all the, amongst, um, amongst uh, all livestock. And I will put enmity between your seed, which means your progeny. The word seed there is plural. So it means your offspring, demons, if you will. Your seed and the seed of the woman. Who might that be? You and me. <laughs> the seed of Eve. Okay? The point being, what Jesus, what God is saying, there is going, because we are going to be 
cast out of Eden, there will be enmity between the serpent and between, between us and another thing, there's an there's a, there's a, a idea we've not seen yet in, in the text, but you will. Paul reminds us that there's the word seed, which is described as the descendants of Abraham, right? It's the same word. And it says Abraham and his seed is actually singular. Well, who? Singular. So it describes Abraham and his progeny and his seed. This is in the covenants with Abraham we'll get into later. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I make a covenant with you and your seed. The word there in Hebrew is singular. So even in the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll get to soon, we see the Old Testament foreshadowing this seed that will fight against Satan, but it's not plural, but singular. It's a mystery still. We haven't, got, we haven't gotten to that yet, but I'll give you a little hint who it is. His name's Jesus. So Adam and Eve blame God. They are forced out of Eden. And then here's just something really interesting, and then we can have a few minutes for, comp, for questions. Um, notice something here to verse 16. Adam and Eve are given consequences of what they've done, and it's important what they are, and here's why. He says to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain shall you bring forth children. Now, in, in uh, Old Testament culture, and actually in a lot of cultures even today, the woman's, what, what made a woman the most proud was to do what? Have a child, right? So the way a woman in the Old Testament, and even in a lot of cultures even today, and I would submit, women take great joy in their children, as you all know, and when you have the first one and it just changes you, you all, you've been there, you know. For a woman to have a child was the mark of fulfillment and success in the world, right? And God says, listen, because of this, even that mark of success, even the high water mark of what you could attain, attain to is going to have pain involved. You with me? And then he says to Adam, you because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, for the man, his job was to be the breadwinner and the provider. Correct? Right? And so what God is saying is that the things that you do, Adam, to be the provider for your family will be done by the sweat of your brow. So Adam and Eve are given two different consequences, but it's actually rooted in the same source, and that is all the strivings for that you have in this life as a result of your decision to walk away and leave the garden from which I created you, it will all be a matter of strife and brokenness. Does that make sense? Everything in this world. Paul, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 22, that ever since, the, so Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they are excluded from the garden, and then actually, um, um, uh oh, what, that, what happened there, Father Greater? My computer's acting up here. Um, and the Lord, what's going on here? I think your Bluetooth is fading here. Anyway, when God sends them out of the garden, it's in verse 24, I think it is. Uh, God says, he, God says, you are, you have chosen to leave my presence. I am going to allow that to occur. You have broken the rules, but God says, 
before you go, I'm going to, um, verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So God sends them out of the Garden of Eden, but he does send them protected, covered. It's a shame he's got to cover them because they were designed to live naked, that's the, the word, but you know, without shame or fear or need or want of any variety. And God says, I'm going to send you out, but I'm not sending you out, you know, in the cold with a cold, with a cold cup of coffee, right? I'm going to send you out clothed and cared for. Um, once Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, what happened as a result? What, what, is, uh, what did God say would happen to them if they touched the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They would what? They would die. So let me put it to you like this. The Bible teaches us that when Adam and Eve are excised from the Garden of Eve, Eden, we were created for Eden, we are no longer there, are we? Yes or no? No. And since we are no longer in the Garden of Eden, we get old, we get sick, we have to have children by painful means. Life is nasty, brutish, and short, right? But it's not the way it was supposed to be. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 20, 23, Paul says, all creation groans, meaning that the world is a big, old, hairy mess as a result of the decision of Adam and Eve and you and I to go against God's word, to go against his will. So where does evil, where does, where does cancer come from? Where does it come? I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean medically. Why do we have cancer in the world? Is there cancer in Eden? No. Was there cancer in Eden? No. Why is it here? Because we live in a fallen world. Is there, was there terrorism in Eden? Yes. No. Is there terrorism here? Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Is there uh, family struggle and strife? Is there relational discord? Are, are kids and grandkids addicted to drugs? Are all sorts of bad things happening in, in, in this world? Yes. But were we created for them? And the answer is no. Do you see my point here? You know, there's an interesting story. You know, when, you know the story uh, at the raising of Lazarus? You know the story of that, that in John chapter 9, 9 or 10? Jesus goes to Lazarus' funeral, and he, he sees his dead friend, or his dead friend's in the cave. He sees everybody crying and wailing and lamenting and, and all these different things. And Jesus sees the crowd, and the Greek, the English translation is the word Jesus... Anybody know it? Wept. Not jest. Jesus wept. That word for wept is a Greek word which means, uh, it does mean emotional crying, but it's actually the word groan. It's actually a word. Um, you know, you guys are familiar with war horses, you know? They have horses that tie to chariots, they charge. When you order a horse to charge and it snorts, right? That's what that word is. Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and sees 
death, which is, again, not the way it's supposed to be. And he sees everybody crying as a result of Lazarus being dead. And he, see, he knows his friend has died. And Jesus is angry. Not at Lazarus, but at the situation that we find ourselves in. Does that make sense? And how that evolved. And how that evolved. And we find out later that the way he solves the problem is by going to the cross and restoring us to God. But the point I want you to see here is God sees the problem that we're in and he groans and says, it's like you with your kids. Oh my gosh, what have you done? What have you seen? I, this is so much better, but now what have you done, right? You've, been, you've all been there. When you try to explain a situation as to why the bad things happen to good people, the next time someone says, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? This is what you say to them, because someone said this to me once. Well, I'm a Christian, and I got a different question for you. Oh, yeah, what's that? Say, why do good things happen to bad people? And they'll go, what do you mean? Well, the Bible tells me that I'm a fallen, broken sinner, because I live in a fallen, broken world. So do you. And, but the Bible also says that God is good to me, even though I'm bad. So the question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? The question is, why do good things happen to bad people? And that's the gospel. So, um, any comments or questions? <laughs> is that a different way to see this than you have before? I got five minutes if anybody has anything. Um, oh, by the way, remember I told you that the whole meta-narrative of this study, remember what it was? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, you're halfway through. <laughs> this, the Bible, right? So we've gone through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. All the rest is commentary. <laughs> <laughs> what you see is as the Bible unfolds, now that, we are, now that humanity has moved from what we were designed for, Eden, to now a foreign world, Right? A fallen world and a foreign world for which we were not created. We were not created to get old and die, friends. But now that we're in there, what happens? And the very next thing we're going to see, if you read, if you continue to read, you'd see, you know, once you're in a fallen world, what's the first thing that happens next? What, what's the next thing in, in, in Genesis chapter 4? What's the first thing that happens? Cain kills his brother. And it just goes downhill from there. And the whole story of the Old Testament is humanity failing, and God coming along and going, why did you do that? And then they come back, and it happens again. And it happens again. And it happens again. And it happens again until Jesus dies on the cross and saves us. And then the message becomes, here's how you get yourself back into Eden. And we'll get to that later. Do you see my point of how this whole thing works? It's a great big circle. Creation and fall, we've got that. Redemption is Jesus, so between now and Jesus, it's all just commentary and stories, which is great stuff. And then the Restoration, which is a book of, of, of uh, Revelation. So next week, we are, are going to look at the flood, Noah, and the ark. That is, so we're not going to go right to chapter 3. We're going to skip ahead to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, to chapter 7, verse 24. And what we see is, again, God loving people who are fallen 
and striving and beginning this idea of making covenants and promises with them even though they're disobedient. Yes, Martha. Yes. When, that's a good question. When, uh, Martha said, well, when, and this is actually, I've thought about this. When Eden is restored, how do we know it won't just happen all over again? I don't know. But we know it's permanent. That's all I can tell you. That's right. Any, any, other, any other questions or comments? Have you guys, am I going too fast? No. Too slow? No. Okay. Uh, what's that? Yes. Wonderful. Well, good. I hope uh, this fall idea is crucial for you to understand the gospel, what Christianity is all about, and it is crucial for you to understand in the context of why the world is the way it is. The world is the way it is. People shoot people from buildings in Las Vegas because evil is real and because we live in a fallen world. Amen? Amen. But God wins, just not yet. <laughs> Someone once described creation salvation history as kind of like watching a rerun of the Super Bowl, right? It's, in, it's exciting to watch. You, you know who wins, but it's still kind of exciting to watch it play out. We know that Jesus wins when he returns. In the meantime, we push on, as Paul says. We'll get to that later. All right. Oh, and by the way, these are all the videos are available on the website if you would like to go see them or share them with your friends. They'll go on. Chris Heiser will... Uh, edit them, and then they'll be posted up in the next day or two. We'll send a link out if you're interested. So thank you all for your time. Uh, why don't we close in prayer? So the Lord be with you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, which shows us the world for which we were created, and the, the world for which we all long for, the world we all know in our humanity and yet is so elusive. Uh, we, th we pray, Lord, thank you, Lord, for Jesus who comes to die to restore us to Eden. And we wait for his return in which it will be restored. Lord, give us the courage to face this world which has fallen and broken with the spirit of joy in the midst of it, knowing that Jesus is victorious. And, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, friends. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.